0: Christmas is about selling the, celebrating the birth of a king. You know what a king is? Go ahead and talk to the person. You know I like to have interactive of services, so I want you to turn the person next to you and tell them what you think a king is. Ready? Go. A king is someone who rules over a people or a territory, right? I don't know any of you like follow the royal family from Britain in here. Any of you royalist? Okay, my wife absolutely loves, you know, I love sports, she loves the royal family. We go on vacation, I read Louis L'Amour history, uh, non-fiction books, she reads about the royal family. So she loves, uh, Prince William and Princess Kate are exactly her age, so she feels like she identifies with them. Uh, when we got married, it uh, was the same year that they got married. Uh, when we were started trying for children, we heard that, that Princess Kate was pregnant with their first child and she was so excited. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but Eric and I struggled with infertility for three years and so it was a long journey. If you've ever been through infertility, you understand what that's like. But after three years, we found out that God was going to bless us with a little baby in May of 2015 and we were super excited. And then, right after that, we found out that Prince William and Princess Kate were going to have their second child in May of 2015. And Erica, you know, I looked at her and I thought, man, you must be so excited. And I looked at her and she was downcast and a little sad. I'm like, what's wrong? You're going to have a baby at the same time? Is the royal family, and she said, they're trying to steal my thunder. I said, Erica, and I kind of left. I said, I don't think we run in the same circles. And she looked at me and she said, maybe you don't. <laughs> the message today in this series, King of Kings, is King Immortal. And what is a king? A king is someone who rules over a people or a territory. And what does the word immortal mean? It means that someone lives forever. They never die. They never decay. And so King Immortal is a king that will rule forever now listen even though we're from the united states and even if you don't like the royal family or follow the royal family whether you know it or not all of us are ruled by a king because there's a throne that sits squarely in the center of your heart and on that throne there will always be a king so the question is, is who or what is it that sits on the throne of your heart who or what is it that sits on the throne of your heart Now, the passage we're going to look at today is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 6 through 11. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or your mobile devices, or as Joe loves to say, the scroll, if you have a scroll that you've carried here today, uh, or you can follow us uh, on the screen. The scripture will be up there. But Paul starts out writing to Timothy, who's like the surrogate son of his that he has mentored and brought up in the faith of Jesus Christ. And so he starts out by telling his spiritual son, he says, but you, Timothy, are a man of God. Now, right away, what jumps off to the uh, of the page as I read this passage is that Paul is reminding Timothy, he says, know whose you are and who you represent. Know whose you are and who you represent. Uh, just one verse earlier in verse 10 he had written to timothy he said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil now notice it doesn't say what that money is the root of all evil he says the love of money is the root of all evil in other words what is it that is the center of your affection what is it that that drives you what is it that you've put on the throne of your heart is what he's saying in other words maybe in today's vernacular what paul is saying to timothy is he said you better check yourself before you wreck yourself verse 10 he had gone on to write this he said as some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows now, did Timothy love chasing money? Did he love chasing wealth? I don't know. We don't really have any of that information. But I know that Paul is speaking a truth that's relevant to all of us today. And that's this. All of us struggle with some kind of sin tendency. You know what that means? That we are prewired, Even though we were born without sin, there are sin specific sins that are more attractive to us than others. And maybe those sins in your life, whatever it is that's attractive for you, is constantly battling God for the preeminent spot on the throne of your heart. And it's those things, specifically the things that fight against God's preeminence in your life, that we have to be concerned with and we have to be and we have to think about for some of us. That's money for some of us. That's sex for some of us. That's pride for some of us. That's power for some of us. That's our reputation. Are any of these things bad in of, in and of themselves? Well, no, of course not. Money is a good thing. M- money allows us to buy food and to buy shelter. And the more money we have, the more influence we have. Money allows us to, to feed third world children. It allows us to send money to missionaries around the world. It allows us to help our community. You know, this week, uh, you guys brought in canned goods and foods, and we were able, because of the money that God has given you, and we were able to take that food and we were able to take it to elementary schools uh, in this area and give food to families who may not have food this holiday season. Money in itself can be a good thing when it's used the right way, when it's not in the preeminent spot in your life. Is sex a bad thing? Well, in the confines of marriage, sex is a wonderful thing. But you didn't think about hearing that in church today. But sex is something that binds us together. It, it provides the intimacy in marriage. It it allows us to help heal from, from maybe some frustrations within the marriage. It allows us to trust one another in its in and of itself sex inside of marriage is beautiful what, what about uh pride is pride a good thing have you ever heard somebody that you need to take pride in your work what's that mean it, it means that you need to work uh to the very best of your ability it means that you use your gifts and talents that God has given to you to provide the best that you have pride in in and of itself is not a bad thing as long as it's not sitting on the throne of your heart what about power Power can be a good thing. People who are in power, when they have the right intentions, in the right heart, are able to help more and more people. People with power are able to protect those who um, are less fortunate, who are weaker than them. So power in and of itself is not a bad thing. What about reputation? Well, the Bible talks a lot about a good name and the value of a good name. You see, these things in and of themselves are not a problem. The problem becomes when they become the most important thing in our life. Because only one thing can sit on the throne of your heart. And if you're going to be honest today, you know what that sin tendency in your life is. And if you don't think that you know, just if you're married, turn to your spouse and ask them what your sin tendency is. And I bet you $100,000 if I had that much money that they know what it is. And you know too. Paul knows all of this. He's been around the block a few times and he's passing this wisdom on to Timothy. He's reminding Timothy whose he is because it's so important because our identity, the way that we view ourselves impacts the way that we live our life. How do you identify? What is it that's important in your life? What is it that you want to model? You know, growing up, I, I did lots of things. I went to a small school. I graduated with 57 people, which means that I was able to do lots of things. My mom was always pushing me to do more and more, and I did things like I was in musicals. I was uh, the they, I was the Tin Man in the Wizard of Oz. They said they typecast me. I don't know what that has to say about my dancing ability. Um, I was in choir. I was president of my class. But you know, I, I was in three sports a year. But the thing that I identified as is a basketball player. I always wanted to be known as a basketball player. And I carried that with me. And even when I met Erica 25 years after I'd been out of high school, I was like, I'm an athlete. And she said, no, you were an athlete. But I carried myself like a basketball player because that's the way that I've always identified myself. Now, my wife, Erica, she had totally different dreams. She hated sports. She didn't like athletes. Her dream growing up was to someday be a powerful CEO who lived in a, who had an office in a, on the corner spot um, Who was yelling and screaming at people all day long and wore a red suit Why a red suit? I don't know But that was her dream And so when we met, the identity that I had was as a basketball player The identity that she had was as a CEO who liked to yell at people And so when we met, she thought I was arrogant and I thought she was mouthy Later on, she would say that we were both right But Paul says, you are a man of God. And he's reminding Timothy of his identity. So let me ask you a question today. What is it that defines you? Cord talked a couple weeks ago about being people pleasers. And I identify with that because I'm a people pleaser. And if you just turn to the person next to you and said, hey, do you think I'm a people pleaser? Chances are that you are. Because people pleasers seek the approval of other people, which leads to what? Insecurity, which leads to us dealing with something that psychologists call the imaginary audience. Have you ever heard of the imaginary audience? The imaginary audience is something that young people deal with a lot. It's something that if you are a people pleaser, you will deal with your entire life. Uh, an imaginary audience is when you believe that everyone is intentionally, and intently watching and judging you. So when you go into a room and people are laughing, you immediately assume that they're laughing at you. If you go into a room and people are whispering in a corner, you immediately assume that people are whispering about you. You think that they're judging you, that you think that they don't like you, they don't, you think that, that you don't fit in. Which leads to what? social anxiety we wonder why there's so much anxiety in our culture today it's because we live in a society that really puts a premium on the imaginary audience If I'm going to be honest, I've always struggled with this, right? My first ministry was in Frankton, Indiana. There's about 130 people. And uh, the senior minister's name was Al Colville. I called him Crazy Al. I absolutely loved him. He went away one summer and he said, Hey, Shane, I'm going to give you an opportunity to preach. I was so excited. I used this thing called a typewriter, which puts pink or ink on a paper when you push a button. And so I was all set to go. And uh, we designed the service my girlfriend and I had at the time. And, and, um, I got to preach. I preached with everything I had. I gave them the best that I had. I prayed that God would use that. But inside, I was dying. Back in that day, when you were done with a message, the preacher would go stand at the front door and people would file out. As every person walked through, I apologized to them. I'm so sorry. That was a horrible message. I'm so sorry. That was just a waste of your time. I'm so sorry. Finally, there was a sweet old lady. Well, she's not old, she's 70, and, and the more birthdays I have, the younger that seems. But she came up to me, her name's D. Closser. She put her arm around me and she said, Son, don't you ever apologize when you speak on God's behalf. But here's the truth about the imaginary audience most people are not focusing on you. Why? Because they're focused on themselves. Right. They could care less what's going on in your life. They may have a passing thought, passing comment, but most people are not focused on you, even though you feel like the whole world is laser focused on what you're doing. But friends, when you understand whose you are and who you represent it should change the way that we live. You are a person of God If you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior You are a woman of God If you are a woman in here today You are a man of God Would you turn to the person next to you And depending on who they are Would you just say You are a Insert Person of God Because friends It's not about you It's not about you Would you turn to the person next to you And say It's not about you Would you turn back to that person and say, you're not so hot either? (laughs) Because you are a representative of the hope of humanity. That's who you are. That's your calling. That's your title. You are a representative of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When I was in high school, before every basketball game, our coaches would take us into the locker room. And they would say, tonight when you go out on the floor, you're not playing for the name on the back of your jersey. You're playing for the name on the front of your jersey. And when you step out onto that floor, it's not about you. You are representing your community. You are representing your school. And most importantly, you are representing your family. So when you go out there, you are representative of more than just yourself. It reminded us of who we were playing for. It reminded us who we were. Because your worth is not found in who you are or what you can do. Your worth is found in whose you are. And when you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are his. Your identity is found in him first and foremost. Paul goes on to write to Timothy, But you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things. Listen, Paul's trying to protect Timothy. He knows what Timothy is in danger of. What is he telling Timothy to run from? From the things that battle God for the throne of Timothy's heart. The things that will entangle him, the things that will drag him down, the things that will p- replace God as the on the preeminent spot and the definer of his life. Listen, I've said it before, there are three reasons that we suffer in this life. We suffer because of our own choices. We suffer because of choices that other people make that we can't control. And we suffer because we simply live in a sin-stained, sin-scarred world. Romans chapter 8 tells us that creation groans because it's off kilter. We live in a broken world that was not the world that God designed for us in the beginning. But those are the three reasons that we suffer. And when we make choices that don't glorify God, when we make choices that take us toward the line of our temptation, whatever that may be, whatever sin tendency is in your life, we are in danger of great heartache. I said it before, someone once said, "Some sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Anybody else in here a sinner besides me? Anybody else ever do something that you are ashamed of? Anybody else ever battling with that tendency that's fighting God for the preeminent spot in your heart who wants to sit on your throne? Listen, when you go down that road, I can promise you it will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. Anybody that's ever dealt with sin understands that to be true. And according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we have all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin, what we earn from our sin is death. But the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when we get toward that sin... When we are tempted in ways that seem to be unpalatable unpalatable to us, we need to learn to do the Joseph jig. You know what a jig is? It's like a dance. It's a lively dance with leaping movements. If you don't know what it is, just watch the future national championship football team, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, and their leprechaun will do a jig. I would do it for you today, but I don't want you to leave. So... If you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph is in Egypt. He was pushed into slavery by his brothers because he was his dad's favorite. But God continues to bless him because he continues to live for God. Finally, he is put into this household of a guy by the name of Potiphar, which was the name long before Mash. And Potiphar uh, is an important dude in Egypt. He is the chief executioner. He was a special forces soldier. And everything that he put into Joseph's hand, God blessed. And Joseph was able to do amazing things. He was able to increase Potiphar's household. He was in, able to, to increase Potiphar's wealth. He got things organized. He had the leadership gift. Potiphar loved Joseph. The problem was, is so did Potiphar's wife. We don't know a lot about her, but we know that Joseph caught her eye. Now, why you would have a wandering eye when your husband is the chief executioner of Egypt and a special forces soldier, I have never figured out. But Joseph catches her eye and she begins to say smooth things to him to try to lead him into a relationship like, are you Jamaican? You must be because you are Jamaican me crazy. (laughs) Now you know why I was 39 before I got married. But Joseph, man, he knows. And so he's running. He is trying to stay away from her. He's trying to, to practice good practices in order to not put himself in compromising situations. But one day it's just Joseph and Potiphar's wife in the household. And she's like, listen, we are going to go to bed together right now. And she grabs a hold of him and grabs his coat. And he does the Joseph jig and he flees and he runs and he sprints out of there leaving his robe behind listen he knew what sin would do to his life he knew how it would destroy him and so he did the Joseph jig and when you get close to that temptation you need to remember that you need to flee you need to get out of there it's not about how close to the line can I get before I go over the line it's about I need to get away from this as fast as I can Um, there's a book called The Heart of Commitment And in this book, it says that every person at one point or another will have something what he calls attractive alternatives. In other words, if you're married, you'll come to this point where you are attracted physically to somebody, emotionally to somebody, spiritually to somebody, and there will be a pull for you to spend time with that person. He says you have two choices when you're faced with that kind of attractive alternative. Either you can choose to find ways to spend time with that person, or you can run as fast as you can the other way and protect The sanctity of your marriage. And what are you going to do? You see friends. All of us. When the battle comes before us. Have a choice. When your marriage is in danger. Are you going to run toward it? That. that Whatever that. Um thing is it's pulling you away are you going to want to run away from it if you struggle with pornography are you going to turn off your your computer throw it away do whatever you have to do to get away from it if you struggle with stealing if you struggle with alcohol if you struggle with drugs whatever it is you struggle with you have a choice to run toward that thing or to run as fast as you can away from it and the problem is is when we run towards those things we allow whatever that is to sit on the throne of our hearts And God gets pushed to the side. And what you need to understand, it's not just about you. Your family, your friends are watching you. And when you have the courage to run away from those things, you'll never know the impact that maybe you've had on other people. I heard a story about two gas company employees and they had pulled up to a... uh, to a neighborhood and and they they parked their truck at one end and then they walked down to the other and they just started checking um the pipes the gas pipes that were going into houses and and they'd go from one house to another as an older guy and a younger guy and uh, they noticed that the woman at the far end was was watching them after a while they just kind of forgot about it and guys will be guys right and they're joking around and as they're uh getting close to the end, the the younger guys, you know, giving the older guy a hard time about how slow he is. He's not as fast. He's not as good looking. He's not as talented as he used to be. And the young, and the old guys like, listen, son, you have no idea how I'm about to dominate your life. Um, because the old guy always wins, right? I can say that I'm telling the story and you can't say anything about it. So they go through and and finally get to the end and they've had a, a good long day and they've been going back and forth. And the old guy's like, Hey, listen, you think you're, you're hot stuff. Let's see who's faster. It can make it back to the truck. We'll see who's going to dominate. And the old guy, so he says, on the count of three, we're just going to start running. And the young guy's like, all right. And so he says, one, two. And then the old guy just takes off. And the young guy's like, what? And so then he starts running as fast as he can. And they're laughing. And they they make it back to the truck. The old guy wins because I'm telling the story. And um, when they get there... They're laughing, and they turn around, and they see the woman who was watching them out the window running as fast as she can, huffing and puffing. And they're like, "Ma'am, is everything okay?" And she's like, "Look, when I see two gas guys run as fast away as, from, as they can away from my house, I'm going to too." Listen, when people see in your life you have the courage to run away from whatever it is that's tempting you you're going to instill in them the courage to do the same thing. Paul continues to write, "...pursue righteousness in a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses." By the way, he's probably talking about um, Timothy's confession at his baptism here. "...and I charge you before God who gives life to all and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering, then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Now friends, I'm not going to tell you that if you make the right choices that life is always going to be perfect. Remember, there are three things, the three reasons we suffer. Our choices, other people's choices we can't control, and simply because we live in a sin-stained, sin-scarred world. But there are consequences for every choice that we make. And most of the time, if you make a good choice, you're going to have good consequences. And if you make bad choices, you're going to have bad consequences. So in the midst of this, we need to remember whose you are and live well. And Jesus will be honored. And all of this will make sense as we understand who defines us. Timothy is reading this letter that Paul writes. And this is how Paul ends this section of his letter. He says, for just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He alone can never die. And he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. You want to know why Jesus is worthy of our worship? It's because there's going to be announcements from heaven someday where Jesus will be announced as King of kings and Lord of lords. lords. In other words, there is no one on this earth who has more authority, more power than him. that, That he alone can never die. Consider that for a moment. He is an infinite being who exists in a finite world. He was there when they laid the foundations of the world. And he is all inspiring in his power and his glory. But as brilliant and as powerful as he is, he gave it all up for you. He gave it all up because he loves you. He gave it all up because He knew that you needed Him. He gave it all up because His desire is for you to be in relationship with your Creator. He gave it all up because He knew the only way to save you from the sin that you had willingly engaged in was to come and be a sacrifice and die so that you could live. He came because of you. He came because of you. As Max Lucado has said, Jesus humbled himself. He went from commanding angels to sleeping in the straw, from holding stars to clutching Mary's finger. The palm that held the universe took the nail of a soldier. Why? Because that's what love does. And Jesus loves you. 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 you. Can you imagine giving up the power to create? The power to design. The power to see infinitely beyond our universe and all of creation. To allowing yourself to be a helpless baby laying in the arms of a teenage mother. From the glory of heaven Commanding angels to having to learn to be potty trained. Can you imagine hating the fear that Satan had instilled in your creation? And then dealing with that same fear because you were going to go to a cross and die a cruel and horrible death. Not just a physical pain. But for the first time in humanity, having your father who loves you so much turn his back on you because you bore the sins of humanity. But he does it, he did it, because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. John Ortberg writes, "In God is closer than you think, the central promise in the Bible is not, I will forgive you. Although, of course, that promise is there too. It's not the promise of life after death, although we are offered that as well. The most frequent promise in the Bible is, I will be with you. Before Adam and Eve ever sinned or needed forgiveness, they were promised God's presence. He would walk with them in the cool of the day. The promise came to Enoch, who walked with God. It was made to Noah and Abraham and Sarah, to Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and Amos and Mary and Paul and too many others to list. It is the reason for courage. Do not be a terrified, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. It kept them going in darkness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. God gave Israel the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant and manna and the temple and a pillar of cloud and another one of fire. Like so many post-it notes saying, don't forget, I am with you. When God himself came to earth, his redemptive name was Emmanuel, meaning God with us. When Jesus left, his promise was to send the spirit so that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. At the end of time, when sin is a distant And defeated memory and forgiveness is as obsolete as buggy whips. Then it will be sung. Now the dwelling place of God is with human beings. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. The unity of the Bible is discovered in the development of life with God is a reality on earth. Centered in the person of Jesus. God has determined that you should be in every respect his friend, his companion, his dwelling place. Friends, he came because of you. Do you understand that he is the finder of directionally challenged sheep? He is the searcher for missing coins. He is the embracer of foolish prodigal sons. You see, if nothing else changed and it was only you that had wandered away, Jesus would have stepped out of the glory of heaven to find you because you matter to him. He loves you. He cares about you. There is nothing that you've done. There is nothing that you have said. There is nothing that you cannot be freed from because his forgiveness is overwhelming. His love knows no boundaries. His hope is eternal. Listen, it doesn't matter what you did last night or last year. There is hope and there is opportunity for change and transformation that can take place today because the God who created you, who knitted you together in your mother's womb loves you and cares about you. And he left the glory of heaven to be here with you. He cares about you. He wants to find you in your darkness. He wants to rescue you from your mess. He wants to pull you out of whatever abysmal situation you have put yourself in, or you have found yourself in, and it's time for you to find healing, and it's time for you to find identity in Him, because He has come to save you. Do you understand that? Listen to me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I teach that song to my three-year-old, my five-year-old, and my one-year-old. Do you know why? Because it is the central truth of Scripture. Jesus loves you. He cares about you. You don't have to live with the shame and the regret and the guilt anymore. You can be freed from the shackles of sin by the Savior who created you. Because your life was so important that he stepped out of heaven for you. This is what Philippians says. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for the way that you love us. And I know in this room today that there are people who are struggling, who feel broken, who feel lost, who feel hopeless, especially at this Christmas season. Lord, would you step into their life? Would you remind them that their heart belongs to you and that you are desperately pursuing them. Lord, today, I pray that you would remind us of your peace. You came to bring peace to a world that was filled with chaos. And today, maybe some of the lives in this room are filled with chaos. Our only hope is Jesus. So, Lord, would you give us the courage? Would you allow the stirring of the Holy Spirit to move us to making a decision today? to believing that transformation is possible, to believing that sin has no hold on us and whatever sin that is battling you, Lord, for the preeminent spot of our life would be defeated so that we could live free. We love you, Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.